Today, uh, we're continuing our series called Simply Jesus, and this is a series where we're looking at the character of Jesus, and this is part of our our year-long series, if you like, called The Year of Biblical Literacy, or Yobel, as we're calling it. And and the basic idea is this, that in an age where people read less, um, no longer really read books, let alone the Bible, we've been taking this whole year to rediscover the joy of becoming biblically literate. The idea is that over the course of this year, our hope and our prayers, each of us would read the Bible for ourselves and in the process discover a new relationship with this book that we often call the Word of God. So, so far in the series, we've had Steve covering how Jesus is our teacher and how we're not so much Christians as we are followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus, apprentices, if you like, in order to become Uh, like him, to be with him, and to do the stuff that he did. Then I talked about Jesus the healer, about how how Jesus not only heals us physically, but also heals us spiritually as well. Tammy spoke about Jesus the saviour, how we are reconciled to God through Jesus. And today, I'm going to be looking at Jesus the revealer. And I'll reveal what that means in a moment. Come on, expect way more groans. Seriously, wake up, people. Um, Today we're going to be mainly camping out in the the book of John, uh, the Gospel of John, and chapter 19, and we're going to be reading from verses 1 through to 38. So if you have a Bible with you, whether that's an electronic or a physical uh, version of the Bible, then it would be really good for you to, you know, follow along with me so you know I'm not just making it up. If you haven't brought your Bible with you, then that's fine, because we will also have the verses up on the screen. Now, although the passage that we're looking at today is quite long, um, I really think it's worthwhile reading it as one chunk, so you really get a feel for the story, you really get a feel for the narrative. I think too often today, we take single pieces of scripture, single verses, we take them, we use them out of context, and we try to use them in isolation. And I think we need to read the Bible as it was intended. And that is this, this grand narrative, these individual stories that are part of the Bible. And so we should read the Bible with that in mind, and we, we get a better feel for the narrative that way. So I'm going to read through this whole thing, and then we're going to go back and go over some of the verses in a little bit more detail. So are you guys ready? Yes? No? Not sure? Okay. We're starting in verse 9. Sorry, in verse 1, chapter 9. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, this word meant sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbours and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then 
were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash, so I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now, the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? They asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now, or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders, who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. A second time, they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Love it, it's getting cheeky now. Is that enough? Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, You were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Quite long, wasn't it? But I hope that you really got a feel for that narrative, that story, that you could almost imagine yourself in that story. Today, I'm going to be talking about worldview. And in the context of these, both in the context of these verses and in our daily lives. 
More importantly, we're going to be looking at how Jesus' worldview was different to everyone else's at the time and how it was tied up in this concept called the kingdom of God, which is a concept that we've already discussed already in this series. So first of all, what is a worldview? Well, a worldview is how we look at the world, but it's also how we interpret things in the world. Everyone has a worldview, whether they know it or not. An analogy that is often used for a worldview is that of a pair of glasses. You see things through the glasses, through the lens. But for me, a slightly better analogy is that of contact lenses. The reason I can see all of your lovely faces today is because I wear contact lenses. The lenses correct my vision so that I can see you all. These contact lenses that I'm wearing, they're, they're, they're pretty good. I wear them 24-7, so 24 hours a day, even sleeping them seven days a week. And once a, once a week, I take them, throw them out, put in a new pair. And they're great, and they're really convenient. And they're so comfortable that I don't even know that they're there. Yet everything that I see in the world passes through these lenses. And, and everything I see is adjusted by the lenses. If my lens were to be tinted pink, then I would think that everything in the world had a pink tint to it. Imagine that I had always worn contact lenses for as long as I could remember, and that I did not know a time when the world was not tinted pink. Naturally, I would assume, therefore, that the world is pink. And furthermore, I would probably assume that everyone else saw the world as I did, i.e. it's tinted pink. So the way that I would be interpreting the world is that the world is very clearly pink. And the reason I think this is a better analogy than that of a pair of glasses for worldview is that quite often you're aware when you're wearing glasses. I know when I used to wear glasses, I was constantly adjusting them. I was, I was conscious they were there. But with contact lenses, I, I literally forget that I have contact lenses. And this is the same as worldview. We're often unaware that there is something that is making us see the world or interpret the world, interpret the world differently. And the thing is, Everyone, every single one of you, everyone in the world has a world view, whether they know it or not. If two different people with different world views were to look at the same thing, they could both interpret it differently, see different things. They could come away with different conclusions. Take a look at this picture for a few seconds. What do you see? Who can see an old woman? Okay, okay, put your hands down. Who can see a young woman? Oh, more people can see the young woman. That's interesting. Okay, who can see both? Ah, you've seen this before. <laughs> it helps if, if you couldn't see both. It helps if you, if you look from the bottom up, you get to see the old woman. If you look from the top down, you get to see the young woman. Same picture, different interpretations. The definition for worldview from the Collins English Dictionary is a person's worldview is the way they see and understand the world, 
the way that someone perceives the world. I particularly like the definition used by John Wimber, who founded the Vineyard Movement. The definition that he used is, our worldview is our unarticulated presuppositions of how things work. Our own worldview is formed from our experiences, our education, our culture, our expectations, and even our family upbringing. And our worldview can be influenced and changed by many things, both for good and for bad. And we often do not realize what is shaping our worldview. We'll look at that in a little bit more detail in a, in, in a little while. But first, let's go back to the first few verses of John 9. It says, as he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Let's stop there for a second. So just picture the scene. We've got Jesus walking along, and all his disciples are with him. And I don't believe for a second they were doing this in silence. I think, remember, Jesus was their teacher, their rabbi. They would have been asking him questions. They would have been, look at that, look at this, tell us about this, Jesus. And as, the Jesus, as Jesus and his disciples were walking through the streets, they're walking and they're talking about scripture, they're talking about God, they're talking about the heavens, they're talking about humanity. And then one of the disciples sees this blind man sitting by the gate. And this triggers a theological question in him. Now, it's interesting to know what question or questions he doesn't ask first. He doesn't ask Jesus, why does evil exist? He doesn't ask that. He doesn't ask, why is there suffering in the world? Or more specifically, why is that man over there, the blind man, why is he suffering? The reason the disciples don't ask these questions is because they presume to have the answers already. The disciples clearly had a worldview. They had unarticulated presuppositions of how things work. So instead they ask, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind. Because of their worldview, the disciples were convinced that blindness must be the result of either that person's sin or that person's parents. It must have been the result of some, some sin in the man's life. This was the lens, if you like, through which they were interpreting suffering in human existence. This was their worldview, their lens, through which most Hebrew people interpreted life and suffering and faith. Today's culture calls this karma, doesn't it? So it says, Good things, you know, you do good things, then good things happen to you. You do bad things, then bad things happen to you. And in the Hebrew culture, this was the normal order of things. Essentially, it went like this. If you are good, and that meant following the laws of Moses very strictly, your life would be good. Praises go up, blessings come down. If you are bad, i.e. if you have sin in your life, or you're not strictly following the laws of Moses, you should expect suffering. You should expect bad things to happen in your life. 
Now, this is the same interpretation of suffering that we looked at through the friends of a man called Job, when we looked at Job a few months ago in the Old Testament. Now, the book of Job, if you're, if you're not aware of it, is the story of this man who loses everything, everything, his family, his home, his health, his finances, everything is gone. Things get so bad at one point that his wife tells him, Job, you may as well curse God and die. Just a a note to spouses, maybe don't do that. That's called kicking the guy when he's down. Not long after Job loses everything, his friends show up and sit with him, grieve with him, mourn his loss. But soon after, the interrogation begins. The friends begin asking Job what hidden sin he has in his life that has caused such suffering. Because it must be a big one. They must have, he must have something significant in his closet because that's the only reason why all of this suffering is happening. But the author of the book of Job, literally from the very, very first verse, makes it clear what kind of man Job was. It says this, In the land of Uz there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. Job was not suffering because of sin. The author debunks that theory from the very beginning. And similarly, Jesus debunks the disciples' theology here as well. So as they're walking by the gate, they see the blind man, the disciples make an assumption based on their worldview, their cultural and their spiritual lens. This man is blind because of sin. The only question they had was, was it his sin or his parents' sin? So before we unpack how Jesus responds to that, I think it's important to acknowledge what the disciples get right about this concept. First, the disciples are correct that the man is blind because sin has entered the world. But we're talking general sin here. We know that this is not the way God intended things to be. God did not create blind humans in the beginning, but sin entered the world in Genesis 3, and that has had all kinds of destructive consequences on humanity. So the man is blind because sin has entered the world, but not because of his own sin did he bring blindness on himself. Secondly, the disciples are correct that that human sin has consequences that are felt by the person who's sinning. These are real consequences that come with making decisions that are sinful. If, for example, I was to sin by committing adultery, first of all, I wouldn't be here today because Esther would have killed me. But let's just assume that I haven't been killed. Then I would have damaged, possibly irreparably, my relationship, not only with Esther, but also with my wonderful daughters, my friends, my family. My reputation, if I have any, would be completely in tatters. 
my personal relationship with my loving father, my God, would have taken a real hit. That would be a natural consequence of me having sinned. Is there forgiveness? Yes. Is there restoration? Of course. But there are consequences. That's an extreme example, I know. But the point is that there are consequences that come with our decisions. But Jesus rejects the hypothesis that this man or his family have brought this particular consequence, i.e. blindness, because of their sin. Instead, Jesus responds to his disciples by saying this, Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Some versions say that the glory of God might be revealed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. So what is Jesus saying here? He's saying he is here to reveal the glory of God in our world, to bring restoration and renewal to the world, to inaugurate the kingdom of God. Jesus is the light that pushes back the darkness. The light is the kingdom of God and is pushing back the kingdom of darkness. Jesus Jesus is the light that disarms and dispels darkness in our world and he's about to do that in this man's life. So as, as Jesus often does, he demonstrates what he's teaching with some action. Jesus spits on the ground and makes mud with his spit and the dirt. Have you ever imagined that? Can you imagine the amount of spit it would take to create these two little spa mud treatments for the guy's eyes? That's a lot of spit. I know, it's gross. I love it. Maybe it's the little boy in me. But I just thought I'd I'd mention it. I don't think that's so cool. Anyway... Jesus puts this mud on the man's eyes and tells him to go wash it off in a pool across town. So the man goes to the pool, washes his eyes, and he can see. It's a miracle. So he goes back home, now being able to see, and all his neighbors and family are, are questioning whether it's really him. Finally, the man convinces them, yes, it is him, it is indeed him, and they drag him to see the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the religious elite, of the time. And now we see that the Pharisees' response. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now, the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, and the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, How can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. So the Pharisees were still not satisfied. They drag in his his parents to confirm that the son was indeed born blind, which they do, they confirm it. And then the Pharisees go on again to interrogate the man, questioning him, how is it that Jesus, a known sinner, because clearly he broke the Sabbath, could heal him? And this is the perfect response. I love this response. He replied, 
Whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they ask him again to tell them what happened. They start to throw insults at him and say that Jesus could not be from God as he is a sinner. Then finally the man responds by saying, if this man were not from God, he could do nothing. This they just could not cope with, so they basically throw their weight around, throw their power around, and have a tantrum. To this I replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. So let's stop there. Stop there for a sec. Why did the Pharisees behave this way? Despite all the evidence, they could not see what was before their eyes. And that was because of their world view. The, the Pharisees, remember, were the religious elite. They knew the scriptures, the Tanakh, inside and out. That's the Old Testament. They had their interpretation of what the scriptures meant. And anyone who challenged their interpretation was just simply wrong. Their worldview had been formed by their culture, their pride, their superior education, their position of power, and their belief that they had all the answers. Because of their power, spiritual pride, and sense of superiority, there was no room for a different interpretation. They were simply blind to anything else. They could not look at the facts come to a conclusion that was congruent or in agreement with their own worldview. So as I mentioned earlier, our worldview is shaped by a number of things, and it can be influenced by what we expose ourselves to. We have to be careful what we expose ourselves to. We need to be careful what influences us. For example, pornography can seriously affect the way that you see people. You start to see sexuality everywhere. You can start to objectify people as a means of sexual gratification. Racism also impacts worldview. I grew up in a neighbourhood where, as it turned out, racism was rampant. But we wouldn't have said that we were racist. That was just the way things were. It It was normal. Only after I went to university, where I got exposed to people from many wonderful countries and cultures, did I start to realise just how racist my neighbourhood had been. Then I met Jesus and I was completely transformed. So much so that after university, I met my wonderful wife, Esther, and I could not be more pleased that our children are mixed race. They truly are the very best of us. So what's the point? Jesus helps us to have a very different worldview. He reveals to us how he sees the world. And it's often an upside-down world to how we see it. So let's just finish off the story. After the Pharisees threw out the ex-blind man, Jesus tracked him down. Don't you love that? Jesus tracked this guy down. He went and found him, sought him out. And Jesus reveals to the man who he is. And now the man goes from not knowing who Jesus is to him maybe being a prophet to seeing that Jesus was in fact God and so worships him. His worldview had been completely changed. 
Through Jesus' actions demonstrating the kingdom, the blind man's worldview had been drastically altered. He can see clearly, not just because he was no longer physically blind, but because Jesus had changed his worldview. He can now see who Jesus really is. Jesus' worldview is different to that of the world's, to our natural worldview. Rich Nathan, who's an author and pastor of Columbus Vineyard in the United States, said this, God is the only one who sees the world as it is. The rest of us see the world through our prejudices, our education, our political affiliations, our family upbringing, our culture, and our expectations, among other things. Jesus is the king of an upside-down kingdom, where the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And I'm personally so full of hope because the kingdom of God does not run according to our worldview or my worldview, but rather to the worldview of God. The theologian N.T. Wright put it this way, hope is what you get when you suddenly realize that a different worldview is possible. A worldview in which the rich the powerful, the unscrupulous, do not, after all, have the last word. The same worldview shift that is demanded by the resurrection of Jesus is the shift that will enable us to transform the world. What is your worldview? What influences you? My daily prayer and my challenge to you today is that we ask God to transform our worldview to be aligned to his. That Jesus will reveal his worldview to us as we go about our daily lives. That as we, as we start to see the world the way Jesus does, that it will enable us to join with him in transforming the world. Or in other words, to join with God in the renewal of all things.